Father, we give you thanks for how you care for us and you meet our needs. And we come before you with thankful hearts today to give back unto you our tithes and our offerings. And we pray that you would take these and use them to accomplish your good purposes. We acknowledge, Lord, that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. You don't need our money. But we give unto you in faith, trusting that you will take and use these resources to accomplish your good purposes. And we commit them to you in that faith. And we ask that you would take and that you would make your name known among the nations. Use us as this local body here in Vero Beach to do that. Make us effective in that work, we pray. Make these means effective as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11, we're going to be begin reading in verse 14. Revelation 11, 14, this is God's word. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your saints, the prophets, or your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, as we stand now in prayer, coming to your word, we pray that you would use it, to accomplish your good purposes in our hearts. We come to this with expectation. We come to this with hope. But we come acknowledging that you have to work, Lord. You have to open our eyes that we might see wonderful things. You have to instruct our hearts. You have to impart wisdom and understanding. And you have to give us the fire of courage to walk in faith according to your word. So would you do these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, the title of today's sermon is probably more well-known to us from Handel's Messiah than it is from Revelation chapter 11, but this is where Handel got that line, and he shall reign forever and ever. And I don't know how familiar you are with Handel's Messiah, but I think it's kind of, at least among Christians in, in, in our current day and age, we hear the tune or we hear that sung, at least I do, when I hear those words. I'm not going to sing to you today. Um, You know better. There's an incredible history around the orchestration of that set of music, of the chorus that goes with it. We won't take time to go through that history, but I would encourage you that if you're not familiar with it, if you've never looked at it, even just a cursory read on Wikipedia uh, will excite you to read about that particular piece of music. 
and not just its writing, but also its impact in history. But those are the words, and if that song is familiar to you, that's the tune that I want ringing in our ears today as we move through Revelation chapter 11. He shall reign forever and ever. Indeed, these are the words that we need to hear as we face hardships, as we witness great powers trying to gain greater power in the world and in governments and in corporations that set their agendas against God's will, as we see the decaying effect of sin in this world. I'm not talking just physically, I'm talking in hearts and lives. We need to hear, He shall reign forever and ever. Each week as we've moved through this study in the book of Revelation, I've kept Revelation 1-3 in the bulletin. You may have noticed that. It's there every week. It's there because there's a promise there that there's a blessing as we study and read the book of Revelation. And my reason for putting it there is because I know there are sections of Revelation where it doesn't feel like a blessing. So I want us to remember that. There's places in Revelation where it feels like a burden, or it feels confusing, or it feels harsh, or it feels like I can't ever understand this. So I want us to come back to that again and again, that... This is a blessing for us to read and to look at the book of Revelation. But here is another verse that we should keep before us as we move forward. As things continue to ramp up in the book of Revelation, as we see a growing intensity. It's here in chapter 11 that we get to the middle of the book. And we won't go into this. We've talked about this some, particularly in our study of Genesis but also in our study of Revelation, both being Hebrew literature, the use of the tool of the chiasmus and that, that, that flowing uh, forward and then backward with a distinct middle. Uh, we've seen those in particular passages in Hebrew literature, but the whole book of Revelation is written in that format. That's something that um, if you want to read more on, I can direct you to some things. But this is the middle. And if you remember with the chiasmus, the middle often contains a central message. So... If we look to verse 19, we can see that what John is trying to drive home, and we've said this before in the book of Revelation, is encouragement for the suffering church, and it's a warning of judgment. We see both of those things here, comfort for God's people and judgment for those who have rejected him. If you don't see that in the opening of heaven and the revealing of the Ark of the Covenant and as a symbol in that vision that John's having, we'll look more at that in a minute. But that is seemingly John's driving point. The message, He shall reign forever and ever, is a message of hope. It is a message of healing to us who believe. It is also a message of justice and judgment for those who have remained in their sins and are yet to believe. It is hope versus hell. It is catastrophe versus comfort. It is pleasure versus perdition. It is vindication versus violence. The message of He shall reign forever and ever is a call to us to live holy lives. It is a call to those who have yet to believe, to put their hope and trust in Jesus. It is a call to hope through the heartache and disappointment that we face in this life. The message, He shall reign forever and ever, is a message we all need to hear today. And so let's begin by looking in verse 14. There's a, a bit of a transition here. We could have looked at this last week. I chose to put it this week 
mainly because last week was full enough already. But this is a transitional phrase. John has included this intermission. That's where we were the last few weeks in 10 and 11, this intermission that focuses on uh, the life, the ministry, the hope of the church. We saw those things. Now we're coming back. We, we took a break from the trumpets, and we saw the same thing with the seals, intermission there as well. Now we're going to come back and conclude with the seventh trumpet. The way he does this is by referring back to those three woes that were mentioned in Revelation 8.13. John writes, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And so he sets those three angels or the three trumpets that are about to blow, the angels that are about to blow those trumpets up as those three woes. And so this now is the third woe. It's the seventh trumpet. That's what he is preparing to announce. And in verse 15, the seventh angel takes his trumpet and he sounds it. And what is John's experience. What do we expect when we come to the seventh trumpet? Right? We know what it is, just as we saw the seventh seal, just as we'll see the seventh bowl. We know the seventh is completion. It is fulfillment. What do we expect to see when we get to the end? The final judgment, right? We, we expect to see fireworks. And instead, in the seventh seal, what did we see? Silence in heaven. And here, what do we see? Singing. Is that what we would expect? I don't. I think that something else is going to happen. And yet the perspective that John has given us in both is really a perspective for the church. It is a perspective to see and to realize where our hope is found. It's so easy for us to get caught up in the fireworks and the the, the beasts and the dragons and the the earthquakes and the hailstorms. Here, John is taking our attention to see what happens when God's judgment comes. It comes with praise. It comes with thanksgiving. The signal of the final judgment initiates singing songs of praise. Why is this? Well, we've talked about this some as we've moved through Revelation. It's worth taking some time to consider it again because judgment is something that in our own day and time is seen as, well, not nice. (laughs) Don't judge me. Right? Probably the the most well-known verse among unbelievers in our own time, is what? Judge not, lest ye be judged. People can say, I'm an atheist, but they can quote the Bible on that verse. Right? <laughs> judge not, lest ye be judged. Jesus is dealing with here not the idea of judging in the sense that, we'll talk about this in a minute, we all judge, we make judgments, but in a sense, and for lack of a better word, this isn't a word, but I'm going to make it up, judgmentalism. Right? It's the idea, it's an attitude that is often hypocritical. It's usually self-serving. I think I could say always. An attitude that looks down your nose on someone else in a way that basically makes your standard the standard. Even if your standard lines up with God's word, you can be judgmental in that sense. Self-centered, self-focused, that's what Christ is getting at. Simply judging is something that we do, I mean, we do this all the time. 
someone hands you a $20 bill to pay you and it feels funny or looks funny, you're going to judge that $20 bill to figure out if it's counterfeit. All right? You're not just going to take it and walk away. I mean, when we pull out here, I know I use driving illustrations all the time, but goodness gracious, the driving here is crazy. And when you pull out on US-1, you better judge how fast the cars are coming and not just assume that they're all driving the speed limit. I can tell you that as someone who pulls out nearly every day here at US-1. We make a judgment. If someone knocks on your door and says, I'm an inspector, I need to come inside your house, you better make a judgment as to whether his or her story holds up before you open your door and let them in. We make judgments every day. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's going after judgmentalism. It is an attitude of the heart. To bring it a little closer to home, within the body of Christ, we are not to be silent if a brother or sister is in sin. It is not that we become judgmental in that judgmentalism sense, but we recognize that God's Word speaks truth. And so we see passages like Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Or Luke 17.3, where Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Or probably the most well-known, Galatians 6, 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We might also think of Matthew 18 and the pattern that we see there. The church of Jesus, made up of us as believers, is evolved in God's judging between sin and righteousness. That is, we proclaim His word. It's not we're judging according to our standard or our preferences, but in proclaiming God's word, there is an act of judging and calling sin for what it is. And yet it comes with a lot of caution as well. The statement that follows what we read in Galatians 6.1, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. This isn't something that we go around uh, with any sense of flippancy and do. But we are to be careful. My point with all of this is to show that judgment is the response of a holy God to sin. Holiness necessitates it. God would not be consistent in His holiness if He were not to judge sin. And so if sin is judged, that is determined to be against the holy God, then judgment is rightly to follow. Again, I'm trying to help us see this consistently. If someone in your family was harmed and they were caught, and they were prosecuted, and they were found guilty, and, a, and, a, and a, a verdict of guilty was passed, but a judgment didn't follow, what would that verdict mean? Nothing. It necessitates that judgment is to follow for the verdict to mean anything. So judgment then is not only right, but it's good. Of course, we all want mercy for ourselves. And hopefully, we want mercy for others. We could preach a whole sermon on that there if we go back to Jesus' words and going after judgmentalism. He also talks a lot about showing mercy. We won't go there today. But we do want mercy. Don't think that revelation and the, the coming final judgment is without mercy. The story of God's great redemption is full of mercy. We've seen it throughout the book of Revelation. Indeed, we see it throughout Scripture. The call to faith and repentance is a gift of mercy. It is a great mercy because we are all deserving of God's judgment. 
to be separated from God eternally, to suffer in the torment of hell. That's what we deserve. The wages of our sin is death. It is judgment. That's what we deserve. That's what we've earned. But God, in His mercy, sent Jesus to die in our place that we might, through faith in Him, be made righteous by His merit and restored unto our Creator and our God. So don't follow the world's mantra then that God's judging sin or His words, His words speaking against sin is somehow hate speech. That's the, the modern thinking. Don't get caught up in our culture's desire to undo sin or call things preferences or just the way that I am. It is a hateful thing to go along with such ideology. What is loving and full of mercy is to believe the gospel, to live out the gospel. It is to proclaim the gospel so that people might come to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and be filled with all the fullness of God and that they might be saved from the wrath to come. That is a merciful and loving thing. Judgment is necessary because God is holy. And judgment is awful for those who have rejected Jesus. However, for those who are being saved, it leads us to praise for the great work of salvation Christ has accomplished, and that's what we see here. Look in verse 15. The song that is sung says this, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom, it's, it's, the, it's John's way of saying the kingdom of the world is done. Kingdom of the world of the world has become the kingdom of our God means that this kingdom of the world is not an eternal kingdom. It is temporary, and at this point, John's looking forward into history at the seventh trumpet. He sees the kingdom of the world is going to come to an end. The kingdom of Satan, who rules through lesser powers in our world, will one day see its end. And this is true not only of past evils. You know, our favorites that we always mention, like Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot and those regimes... But it also includes all the evil stuff that's going on today. By evil, I would argue it is any kingdom that opposes or does not submit to and embrace the kingdom of God. So are you afraid that secular humanism is taking over the world? It is. Fear not. (laughs) Don't be afraid. Are you afraid of one political party or another gaining too much power? Don't be afraid. Are you concerned about a one-world government emerging to oppress all peoples? Are you worried about big tech giants gaining greater and greater control over our lives and using it to do so? Are you anxious about Hollywood and the media's power over the minds and hearts of our young people? The kingdom of God will put an end to all of these things. All of them. So every time those things keep us up at night and worry us and concern us, because we think the world is going to hell in a handbasket, fear not. He will reign forever and ever. His kingdom is coming, and of it there is no end. And while we should certainly be aware and oppose such evil in this world, it shouldn't keep us up at night. We should come back to this verse in 15 again to see what happens. This is the hope that we have. When the kingdom of our God is finally and fully realized, we call this consummation. The end has come. Judgment will be final. Sin and all of our tears will be no more. And we will be with our reigning God forever and ever. 
And while many aspects of the book of Revelation discuss fiery judgments and catastrophic events at the end, the seventh trumpet focuses on the benefits of God's judgments for his people. It speaks of the coming fiery judgments, but it focuses on the benefits for God's people. It is just one angle of the end. We're going to see multiple angles, uh, not just in the in the in what we saw in the seal, uh, the trumpet, and what we'll see on the bowl, but there's much greater description given to the coming end. This is just one angle. At the end, there are going to be songs of praise sung in heaven. Instead of looking on the earth and focusing on earthquakes and wars and beasts and plagues, we're given the glimpse of the heavenly angels responding with the 24 elders to God's final judgment. And they do so in song. Look in verse 16. We see the 24 elders move from sitting on their thrones to falling on their faces before the triune God. And before looking at what they sang, let's remind ourselves who the 24 represent. Twelve apostles, twelve tribes of Israel, simply a symbol or a picture for John to see all God's people throughout all ages under both covenants. This, these represent all who are God's in heaven. And so all those who throughout time belong to God at the end are pictured here singing these songs of praise to who God, for who God is and what he's done. Looking next to the song itself, we see it as a song of thanksgiving to the Lord God Almighty. This is directed to the Father. It is the kingdom of God. But as you notice in verse 15, it is also the kingdom of his Christ. It is the Father who sent the Son to establish the kingdom, his kingdom, on earth. And although the Holy Spirit is not mentioned here, we saw this last week, it is by the Spirit's indwelling in us that we are made the temple of our Lord. And so this is really a picture of the triune God who has brought us into his kingdom according to his great love but by which he called and saved us. God is addressed in verse 17 as the one who is and who was. Do you notice anything missing in that line? Think back to Revelation 1, 4, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Or what we sang this morning in holy, 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 which is taken from Revelation 4, 8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Why is the line who is to come omitted here? It's because he's come. (laughs) John is seen into the future. And at this point, it is no longer that Jesus is to come. He has come. That's why they're singing. That's why they're celebrating. Uh, In his coming, there's judgment. We're going to see that angle later. But in this angle, the 24 elders, those who represent all of God's people throughout time, are standing, or falling on their faces rather, and singing. In his return, he has taken his great power and begun to reign. This doesn't mean that he's not currently reigning or currently sovereign, but rather this is a description of the consummation of the kingdom, that he puts into effect its fullness. And in its fulfillment, sin will be eradicated and judged. We long for that day when it is taken away and our redemption will be fully realized. This is a little long, but listen to this. I think it's beautiful. Doug Kelly wrote this. He said, This song looks ahead to the final judgment of the quick and the dead as though it had already happened. It rejoices that every wrong will be righted, every noble aspiration fulfilled, every tear dried, every deed of love rewarded, every evil dealt with and eternally put away, and Christ will be all in all. 
The hymn says that beneath all the complications of our lives and beneath all the terrifying events among the nations, we need to open our ears by faith to hear this song that will one day ring out over all the universe as the curtain falls on world history. Tune your ears by faith through the Word of God, and you will be a happier person when you hear the saints and angels singing of what is going on and what really is going to happen, contrary to the superficial appearances in the media. Tune your ears to hear the song. In verse 18, we see this historical overview uh, given. It's provided to help us to see what has happened throughout redemptive history. It alludes to Psalm 2. That's what we read this morning and why we read it. We see that the nations have raged against which the wrath of God has finally come and been revealed in its full scope. The dead are judged. We see two categories of this judgment In the end, it's God's people and those who have rejected, those who aren't God's people. God's people are rewarded according to what Christ has accomplished. Described here are, or as rather, your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. I would argue that these are not separate categories of Christians, but rather these describe every one of us. We are all servants. We all proclaim His word. We all fear His name. And that both significant and insignificant, I think, is a nod more to how we view ourselves as less significant than others. Or maybe at times we're tempted to think of ourselves as more significant than others. And what we see here is this great equalization of all. Guess what? We're all trophies of God's grace in Christ Jesus. None of us are more noble than the other. None of us had fewer sins to forgive than the next. We are all trophies of God's grace. We are all, uh, we've all received nothing but mercy. We have only to boast in Christ. The other group, of course, are those who have rejected him. They're called here the destroyers of the earth. That phrase or versions of that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, that's uh, used throughout the book of Revelation to depict those who have rejected uh, God. They are the ones who have oppressed God's people. They're the ones who have tormented His church. We saw this in the last two weeks, that those receive their final judgment. The return of Christ and the final judgment brings an ultimate end to the kingdom of this world and all who have followed its course. Folks, it is so much easier if we look with our eyes to believe that the kingdom of this world is going to win. The only way that we're going to get reoriented to what is really going to happen is to come to God's Word. And I'll give you a pro tip here. If you are living in anxiety and fear over these things, turn your TV off. I know that sounds like an old-time preacher. Turn your TV off and open your Bible. Right? And that's how we hear it. But folks, that's, that is what will change. Because I can tell you, I fall into the same traps. I have to, I have to delete Twitter. <laughs> because I read it and I'm like, oh my word, oh my word, oh my word, it's gonna get terrible. And I'm just reading the Christian tweets. Alright? <laughs> Turn it off. Open your Bible. 
Come back to Revelation chapter 11. Look right smack dab in the middle and see what will happen to the kingdom of this world. Verse 19. This is how it ends. John sees heaven opened, pictured as the temple of God with the Ark of the Covenant visible. It's a symbolic image as William Hendrickson describes it. In this picture, the sanctuary of God is now open. Uh, Heaven is, is, is now open wide. Nothing remains veiled. Remember how the Ark was treated in the tabernacle in the temple. There was a veil there. High priest, once a year, only one that ever got to see it. It was covered up the rest of the time when it was carried. It couldn't touch it. had to be treated a special way, right? There was a separation. And here now, nothing remains hidden or concealed. The Ark of the Covenant, so long hidden from view, is now seen. That Ark of the Covenant is the symbol of the superlatively real, intimate, and perfect fellowship between God and His people. A fellowship based on the atonement. Think of the mercy seat. We read in Exodus 25:22, And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. Hence, when this ark is now seen, that is fully revealed, the covenant of grace in all its sweetness is realized in the hearts and lives of God's children. That's what the picture is to us. It is a picture of what Christ has done for us. The mercy seat is not something covered up not something kept separate. It is something that is opened up to us that we may fully avail of all that it means to us. The people of God are hereby then comforted by this vision, knowing that in full what John describes or will describe as we get there, but let's peek ahead, Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then in verse verse 22, he says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. This glorious picture of salvation, depicted in the symbol of the heavenly ark, opened and available for all who are in Christ, This is comfort for the suffering churches in Asia Minor. It is comfort for the church throughout the age. And yet it is judgment for those who do not fear God. Flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, an earthquake, heavy hail, all point to our all-consuming God. And so this terrible image there, mixed in with these words of comfort, is a call to any who have yet to believe to do what the psalmist said that we read this morning, Psalm 2.12, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And So may these songs in Revelation 11 move us to continually take refuge in him, who reigns now, who is coming, who will bring and put into fulfillment all that has been promised to us, May our songs be employed in the praise to Him for His great salvation. No more will sin and sorrows grow. No more will thorns infest the ground. He will come to bring the culmination of all of our longings with great joy, showing His saving power as far as the curse is found.
So we may we give him praise for the wonders of his love to us. And may we find deep comfort and great strength and the hope and the truth that our God will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, strengthen our heart by these things. Overcome the fears and anxieties that we feel when we look around, not just in the world, but in our own lives. And we think, will, will, will anything ever be right? Lord, bring us back again and again to this hope that one day everything will be right. We long for that day, Lord. And until it comes, would you strengthen us and make us to stand strong in your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yes.